Joyce Lynn, Jamie, The Wolf, James, Judd, Don, Reed, Ben, Palmer. Here we go. Know this. Snap Judgment Live is coming to Boston and Philly. The nation's top storytellers, the funk of the Snap Band, Boston, Philly. Feel all the feels. The best night out ever. Tickets available at snapjudgment.org. Okay, so a bear, a goose, and a whale walk into a bar. They all sit down, and the bartender asks them what they think of Jesus Christ. The bear says, well, I think Jesus is the savior of all mankind. The goose says, well, I don't know about savior, but he certainly was a wise teacher. And the whale says, Because, you know, that was my whale sound. From Snap Judgment and WNYC Studios, my name is Glenn Washington. Welcome back to part two of The Bear, the Goose, and the Whale. If you haven't heard part one, listen to that the same way you got this. But first, get on your warmest coat. Some thermal underwear, because our story takes place way, way, way up north. Even further than Vancouver. Back when... One, Benjamin Young Savage, was but nine years old. I grew up in northern Quebec. It's an abandoned mining town, and a native tribe called the Nascapi settled outside the town in a village called Kawawachikamach. The town is very, very remote. Um, the only way to get there is via train or by plane. And none of the roads are paved except for in town. So in the wintertime, uh, we get, you know, on average 15 feet of snow every year. And so one of the main ways people get around is via snowmobile. My name is Benjamin Young Savage, and my parents did translation work with the tribe. So I grew up with the tribe. I actually grew up in different houses of people that I would consider elders or, or grandfathers or grandmothers. A lot of the Nascapi elders embraced me and took me in as one of their own, but I really didn't have anybody who was my own age who I could hang out with and be friends with. I felt very alone. My father would always go to Tommy Enish's house to sip tea and eat bannock and listen to him tell legends and stories of time in the past. Tommy was one of those elders that took me under his wing. And then one day we were there and Tommy began talking with my dad about this old snowmobile frame that he had sitting out in his yard. And he wondered if my dad might be able to help him drag it to the dump. And then he pointedly asked, unless you know somebody who might want it, and looked at me. And so that's how I ended up with the snowmobile frame. My father and I built a, uh, a snowmobile out of scrap parts. And uh, so I... <laughs> I had this snowmobile that looks like it's out of a steampunk movie. It's got like a, an old 
headlight from a school bus like wired onto the handlebars you know there's no plastic covering over the snowmobile at all the engine is just sitting there exposed the gas tank is like hanging off the front of the engine held on by a a big strap it was a very dangerous and very fast machine but i i really really loved it and i went everywhere on the thing There was definitely this huge sense of freedom that I got riding the snowmobile. You know, because winter is most of the year, the snowmobile let me have a huge range. My mom was always like, make sure you're back by sundown. We were so remote that herds of caribou would sometimes thunder through the town. Sometimes the ice would thaw early and there was always a danger of falling through. There were wild animals. I saw wolves when I was out by myself, and I told her about that, and she was really, really scared. My mom, she came from suburban America, so, like, she wasn't used to having so many dangers around anything, but, you know, it was, it was perpetually around us, so there wasn't a ton that she could do. I would go up to the dump and pick up electronics, so I'd pick up old boom boxes and television sets and computer monitors, and I would drag them home and um, fix them. And I was like, this is great. I can go up to the dump anytime we want. It was actually kind of late in the day, and I think, I don't know, something was happening at home where I just wanted to get out of the house. But because the sun had already started going down, it was around like, you know, 2 o'clock or so, um... I knew that I couldn't stay out too long, so I was like, I'll, I'll go to the dump. I haven't been there in a little while. So I hopped on a snowmobile, and I ride up the road towards the dump, and I'm heading west, so the sun is going down, and I can kind of see it scraping along the tops of the ridge. So I get there, and I, uh, I find a, uh, a broken hockey stick, and so what I did was I make my way through the dump with the hockey stick because I really didn't want to pick up garbage bags with my hand. So I'm walking along and I'm looking for electronics and I'm not seeing any. So using the sharpened hockey stick, I stab into the garbage bags and I'm kind of heaving them over my shoulder, just throwing them willy-nilly just to see if there's anything underneath. Stab, heave, stab, heave. I'm just pitching these garbage bags over my shoulder. And all of a sudden, I stab into a garbage bag, and it whips around and has claws and fangs. It was a black bear. It was a, a juvenile black bear, and it was sitting with its back to me, probably munching on something and minding its own business. But in the dimming light, the bear looked like a garbage bag. And I had just stabbed it in the ass. So this bear whips around and rears up on its hind legs. It is mad. It is roaring. And everything seemed to freeze at that point. I remembered that there's no real way that you can outrun a bear. They can go around 30 miles an hour, which is about the top speed that my snowmobile can do. I dropped the stick. I was weaponless. I couldn't outrun it. There's nothing that 
I could use around me to defend myself. I was scrawny and skinny, and but I was only 12 years old. I was the smallest kid in my class. For some reason, I leaned in and charged at the bear myself and kind of gave it this big hug. The bear's fur is really soft, and I'm holding on for dear life. My arms are wrapped around the bear as tightly as I can. His claws are ripping at my jacket. The down of my jacket is flying out the holes that he's making in the back. He can't get a hold on me. His muzzle is snarling right next to my head. His breath is hot and smells of the garbage that he was eating. He's trying to bite me in any way that he can, but he can't because I'm too close to him. Feathers are going everywhere and I am panicking. Pretty soon he's gonna make it all the way through my jacket and I'm not sure what I'm gonna do at that point. I was screaming, but I'm miles away from anybody. If something happened to me out here, that was it. Nobody's going to find me until the next morning if, if something happens. All of a sudden, I remember that in my winter jacket pocket, I have a Bowie knife. My knife was in my right pocket, and my right hand was kind of free. The bear and I were chest to chest. His right paw under my left arm. His head over my left shoulder. His left paw clawing at my back. I dive into my pocket and whip the knife out. Quickly as I could, I jammed it into the side of the bear under its armpit. Right kind of where I thought the heart of the bear might be. And I felt the bear go limp. I pull it out and I just run. I book it back to the snowmobile. The snowmobile's sitting on the edge of the dump and I'm slipping, I'm stumbling, I'm trying to get away from this bear as quickly as I possibly can. Miraculously, the snowmobile starts up with one pull from the starter, and I hit the throttle and make a break for the entrance of the dump. Only when I get to the gate do I turn around and see the bear still slumped over, not moving. When I knew that I had killed this bear and that the bear was just lying in a dump, that really ate at me because even though it was in self-defense and even though, you know, I was I was saving my own skin, it felt really wrong to have killed something and then just have run away. And that really weighed heavy on me. Um, I just felt bad because that bear was just sitting there minding its own business trying to get some dinner. And uh, through my own kind of stupidity, I'd, I'd killed it. I, I rode the entire way home and the, the whole thing was a blur because there's just tears streaming down my face and freezing onto my scarf. Right as I got to the edge of town, I realized that my jacket was a mess. There were, you know, it was the back was in ribbons and I knew that if I went home and told my parents that I had been attacked by a bear, that would be the very last time that I would ever be able to go to the dump by myself. 
And so that would have meant that I would have had to be stuck at home um, most of the winter. And I didn't want that. And so if I had to lie to my parents in order to keep that freedom, that was the trade. I got off the, the snowmobile and there was a big gravel pile near an industrial area. And I took off my I, my coat and I rubbed it in the gravel to make it look like it had been really dirty. And I wiped the blood off my knife in the snow. And I drove really, really slowly back home. And when my mom saw my jacket, I told her that I'd ripped it while I was, you know, climbing through an abandoned building. She totally bought this story, hook, line, and cinder. I mean, she was used to it. I, I always came up, came home with, with torn up clothes and, and ruined shirts and, you know, all kinds of stuff. From that point on, I realized there wasn't a whole lot that I needed to be scared of. I mean, I was 12. I'd apparently killed a bear and lived to tell the tale. All my other troubles and everything else in my life seemed to pale in comparison to that. What else was there to be afraid of in the world? What else was there for me to be worried about? There were so many times where I wanted to tell people, to tell the kids in my school, that I'd killed a bear. And yet, I also really liked keeping it to myself. I didn't want to brag about it. I liked that I was the only one who knew about it. And that I knew that I was special. I knew that I had gone through this. And it didn't matter as much that other people knew. Besides, who would believe that a scrawny 12-year-old kid had killed a bear by himself? Many thanks to Benjamin Young Savage for sharing this story. Benjamin is now a graphic artist, illustrator, and abolitionist based in Baltimore. Thanks as well to Al Letson, host of the Amazing Reveal podcast, for letting me know about Benjamin. Original score for that piece was by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Adiza Egan and Eliza Smith. Now then, when Snap Judgment returns, duck, duck, somebody's gonna be a goose, I promise. Stay tuned. WNYC Studios. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the bear, the goose, and the whale episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and our next story starts back in the days of Prohibition, the time of bootleg whiskey, secret nightclubs, and lots and lots of police raids. Snap Judgment. The Jungle Room was, it, it only seated like 300 people. It had all kinds of masks from all over Africa, and African fabric on the walls, and, and the, the uh, tables, they looked like huge African drums. What they were most famous for is that like Cab Calloway and 
Count Basie and Duke Ellington and Ella Fitzgerald would come to the club after working hours. So after they finished playing at the Cotton Club at 2 o'clock in the morning, they would come to the Jungle Room and they would perform for each other. When the cops came, because they, they came fairly regularly, there was, there was this really sophisticated system of shutdown and flip over. And when you hit the switch, maybe 20 of these liquor cabinets flip around to the opposite side and they present a blank wall. The craps table flipped over, gambling tables disappear. By the time the police actually got inside, there would be nothing that they considered illegal going on. As an African in America, you have to always be on your guard. You have to always be aware. You have to always know what's going on. My grandfather recognized the fact that he was a goose in a fox court. Well, basically what's happening is they tell the story of old Sister Goose who was walking down the way. She gets snatched up by a fox. The fox wants to break her neck and eat her. And she says, no, hold on. You can't do that. We're going to go to the police. They call the police, but the police, they were foxes also. So she said, well, we're going to the courthouse. And they went to the courthouse. And at the courthouse, the, the, the judge was a fox and the jury were foxes. So they broke her neck and they picked her bones. You cannot get goose justice in a fox court. And from that, I recognized that it was necessary for me to leave the United States of America and get out of Dodge. When I was 21 years old, I was on the island of St. Thomas. And the reason that I was on the island of St. Thomas is because when I studied what is the closest place where people speak English, that's what came up. And it cost no more than $25 for me to get there. And I got there. And when I got there, everybody looked like me. I got a college degree. I'm like, I'm going to have a job. I finally got that first real job, the first real job that I ever wanted to have that would get me on the path to what I wanted to do. Here I am. I am an elementary school teacher in the Virgin Islands. Get out of here. I'd just become a school teacher. That was my first week, uh, slightly inebriated. Me and my five white friends, everybody was a school teacher. Males, testosterone, zooming all over the place. I mean, you know, none of us were punks. And so we're walking down this alley and somebody says, oh, look, they left the door open to the big time restaurant. And they said, oh, look, the back door is open. So somebody said, man, you know, somebody could go in there and just steal all of that food. And somebody said, oh, no, they couldn't do that because there's like this screen door there. And I said, actually, I could flip the latch on that door um, real easily. And we could just go in and take anything we wanted. We took all the hamburger meat. We took all the cheese. And we took all the steaks. And, and we weren't really even thinking about what we were doing we just took we didn't take anything else we took the steaks and we took the hamburger we knew we could eat steaks and hamburgers you know share steaks and hamburgers with all our friends 
on the beach, you know. I mean, if we were in Hawaii, we would have called it a luau. Actually, I shouldn't admit this, but at the time, it seemed like a good idea. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, the police jumped out and shouted, put up your hands, put your hands up. Being from Harlem, I immediately tried to touch the sky. They took us to the police station, and I was immediately separated from my friends. Did I mention the fact that uh, my friends were white, uh, and I'm not? So I'm in this interrogation room, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just waiting because I don't know what's going on. So they put me in the cell. These cells are 18th century dungeons with high ceilings and just one ventilation shaft. It's real dismal kind of conditions in there. All my friends bailed out the next day. I was suspended from my job as a school teacher. It took five weeks before we had a trial. During that five weeks, my co-defendants never contacted me. When we arrived at court, they all had Brooks Brothers lawyers. You know, they were suited and booted, and nobody spoke to me. I was the only person who had a court-appointed attorney, and he was late. He was five minutes late. He was 10 minutes late. Okay, I'm sweating bullets. I mean, you know, I'm going to jail. My lawyer was nearly 20 minutes late. Then he burst through the doors with a flourish. He was mid-60s in age, a handsome brown-skinned man with a swagger. He looks like something out of Ebony magazine. He looks like a fashion model. I mean, he's clean as the board of hell. And when he walks through the door, the judge says to him, good morning, Judge Christian. My lawyer is a retired judge. I'm like, man, all right. And then my, my, my lawyer says to the judge, Begging your honest pardon, the reason why I was late is because I was in the hallway speaking with the arresting officers and they want to dismiss all the charges against my client without prejudice. They're dismissing all the charges against me without prejudice. Now, my five friends, they still there. They still got court to go to and I'm leaving, I'm out, I'm free to go, I'm out of there. I figured it out really quickly. It felt like, I guess it must feel like what it feels like being a Caucasian in America. I found out later on that they were ordered to pay heavy fines, they were exiled from the island and told if they ever returned, they would be charged and imprisoned. But that's not even the end of the story. See, once I got outside of the courtroom, my lawyer, he says to me, have you been paid for the time that you were suspended from teaching? 
And I said, no. He said, you were suspended for five weeks? I said, yeah, I've not been paid. He said, okay, I want you to go to the governor's office. Tell him that I said that they must pay you. So I went to the governor's office. When I get to the governor's mansion, everybody knows who I am. I don't know how everybody, everybody knew who I was when I walked up, big old afro, three-piece suit, watch out. And I go into the governor's office, and he's like, have a seat. Have a seat? You want me to, you know, like, sit down? All right. So I sit down in the governor's office, and I'm actually feeling a little bit relaxed, you know. So we start talking. He asked me where I'm from. I saw I'm from New York. You know, I grew up in Harlem. He said, oh, Harlem. I remember Harlem. I remember Harlem back during the Roaring Twenties. I used to hang out in Harlem back in the day. And I was like, really? You know, because my grandfather, he hung out in Harlem too, you know, and he owned a, a club, you know, called the Jungle Room. He said, Mr. B? You talking Mr. B? You Mr. B's grandson? Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, this is Mr. B. Grandson in here. You know, we start talking and, and kicking it a little bit, and he says, I got to give him my grandfather's address and telephone number, and they haven't gotten together in all these years. Oh, yeah, and here, let me sign this petition for you. You know, and I need you, anytime you have a problem or anything, you come back by, I want you to know that my door is always open to you. Your door is always open to me, and you are the governor. And the governor saying to me, if there's anything that you need, if there's anything that I need, he said, if there's anything that you need, just give me a call. Dude, we were going to get some goose justice up in the goose court. You know what I'm saying? Watch out. Thanks, as always, to the great Abdul Kenyatta for that story. The original score was by Leon Morimoto. That piece was produced by Anna Sussman. Now then, if you missed even a moment of snap goodness, know that more snap storytelling awaits than you can sick a bear, a goose, or a whale on. Get the amazing podcast, snapjudgment.org. And speaking of podcasts, if you want to be scared, you want to be scared, Snap just launched the brand new Spooked Podcast, 13 creepy supernatural episodes before Halloween. Get yours with a quickness, but be afraid. Spookedpodcast.org. Snap was produced by the team that is more beast than human. Mark Ristich, Pat Masidi Miller, Anna Sussman, Adiza Egan, Eliza Smith, Joe Rosenberg, Shayna Sheely, Teo Ducat, Leon Morimoto, Renzo Gorio, and Jasmine Aguilera. And even though this is not the news, no way is this the news. In fact, for the grand finale, you could put your head in the lion's maw at the circus only to wonder if you forgot to feed the lions today. And even then, you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC. 